for only having you know 20 30 minutes per show y'all squeeze a little too much football in for my liking (laughs) good morning and welcome to episode 298 of effectively wild the daily podcast from baseball prospectus i'm sam miller here with ben Lindbergh. ben how are you great just feel like i stepped through a time warp 150 episodes or so in the future Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're almost to 300 when I said I was going to quit. How about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can. Right. Uh, we're doing our uh, our regular thing, which is talking about a team. Uh, and today we're joined by uh, Paul Sporer. A Sporer. Sporer. Sporer? You said it right every single time. <laughs> yeah, <that> was... <laughs> you said it the same every single time. <laughs> All right, we're with Paul Sporer from uh, Baseball Prospectus, um, who wrote the Tigers chapter, um, and uh, I assume did a the, wonderful job. And does the BP Fantasy Podcast. It's podcast crossover. That's true. It is. This would be the most professional podcast that we've yes. done. And we will also be talking to Jason Beck, or we will not be, but Pete did talk to Jason Beck from MLB.com, so that will be coming up after Paul. Excellent. Um, so, uh, so Paul, you wrote about the Tigers. Why did you write about the Tigers? Well, I I begged to write about the Tigers. They are my favorite team, and you know when they said you know who do you want, I listed them at the top, and then I put like ten spaces to to denote just how much they were ahead of everybody, and then I listed the other teams that I was interested in. And that worked. Okay. It worked very well. It did. So that's a tip to everybody else for next year's annual. So the Tigers are coming off of a year in which they went to the World Series and got smoked in the World Series. Was it a good year or a bad year? It was a good year. I mean, if you go to the World Series, it it has to be a good year. It really does. It's hard to take. The players would all say it's a bad year. We go to win, things like that. I understand that. But if you're going to step back and you know do the cliche 30,000-foot view – it's a good year when you make it there, especially considering the struggles that they had. They end up with 88 wins. Uh, you know, you never hear anybody mention this, but the Angels actually had one more win than them. I don't know if you guys knew that, but uh, it, it's rarely mentioned by anybody that the Angels had one more win than them despite not making the playoffs. Uh, so, yeah, you know, they overcame that. They play in a garbage division. We know that. But when the, when they got into the tournament, they got hot, crushed the Yankees again, got through the A's. Obviously, they, they, they fell in the World Series, but if you're going to judge your season on a, on a seven-game series and just say it's good or bad based on that, you're going to end up disappointed quite a bit. So taking you know, all 100 and I guess whatever it would be, you know, 170, 180 games, it was a good season. So they entered that season as overwhelming favorites, if if memory serves, right? And then mm-hmm. they, Absolutely. for at least much of the year, were were perceived to have underperformed. And and I guess I guess the White Sox must have spent much more time in first place than they did, probably. Although not mm-hmm. not the important days at the end. Um, so would would you say that they are now as overwhelming a favorite? Uh, to repeat as 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 AL Central champions this year as as people thought they were a year ago? I would say it, it's pretty close, but maybe brought down a tick, if only because last year those who were you know that high on the bandwagon got got burned a bit. I think maybe the natural inclination would be to say, well, last year we put them as this overwhelming favorite. Let's let's bring it down a little bit, bring the expectations down a tick, and not count out Chicago or even you know heaven forbid, like KC or Cleveland uh, or maybe even Minnesota, you know, comes up and has a miracle season. On paper, it doesn't look like either of those three teams will, 
but it didn't really look like Chicago was going to compete either. They had some good talent, but nobody really thought they were going to be in first place for most of the season. Mm-hmm. So they were able to uh, upgrade uh, mid-season last year um, when they traded for Anibal Sanchez and, and Omar Infante. Um, and, you know, a lot of times uh, teams that are in contention have to do that. Right now the Tigers have, uh, you know, arguably the worst uh, uh minor league system in baseball uh one of the two or three worst uh at least um is there anything that they can trade from if they get in a position where they need to upgrade mid-season or are they really in a way sort of stuck with what they've got at this point they're more or less stuck uh, unless something a, a real key piece that they could you know keep for maybe uh the rest of this year plus another year or even plus two years, somebody that's really going to stick around, then Nick Castellanos would come into the discussion. That is, of course, if he doesn't you know, go tear up AAA right away and push his way into the lineup. The left field situation is still a bit uncertain. Uh, Jim Leland has said that Andy Dirks is not a full-time solution, so right now they're looking at some sort of platoon out there. Avisel Garcia probably not ready he's another hot prospect though who really upped his stock too so if both Castellanos and Garcia are in the minors and they need you know say things really go awry with the pitching and all of a sudden you know because they don't have a lot of reserves behind their original five even though it's a great five if they need to go out and get a pitcher again they could trade from those two but beyond that somebody would really have to come up like Jake Thompson, the first round pick from last or the first pick from last year, I believe he's actually in the second round. He'd have to come up and have a huge year or one of their, um, you know, real toolsy kind of dream on guys would really have to put something together to up their prospect stock in the neck in the first four months of the season. Otherwise, no, they're really, they've really run it out and they don't want to trade Castellanos unless it really comes down to it. They'd have to get a, excellent player so Dirks had a, a really good year and, and uh, the impression I got in the second half was that he was kind of uh, a you know sort of a beloved figure uh, on that team uh, why do you say that uh, or, or I guess why do you suppose that Leland doesn't see him as a as a, a full-time regular guy that he can count on I don't know that actually really surprised me I I, I was of the mindset that the that they were set uh, because you know he He's not great against lefties. He, he really didn't get much of a chance against them, only 83 plate appearances, 751 OPS. Again, that's not great, but when you're talking about lefty on lefty, I think the average last year was something in the 600s you know, it, it, for OPS. So it really wasn't good, but he crushed righties, uh, 889 OPS in 261 plate appearances. So uh, neither of those samples is huge. So I guess they want to see more from him before just handing him the full job. So he, he did come out and say that, <laughs> Right now, we see him as a platoon guy, and we're going to find somebody to pair with him. And who do they pair with him? That's a great question. I think right now that's a bit of an open question. Uh, obviously, from what I heard within the organization, obviously, El Garcia is somebody they want to get everyday reps for. And if they can't, uh, then he can't be up. So mm-hmm. they're going to have to start to look elsewhere. I know Brennan Bosch was tendered a contract. That's a guy that they still really like. They speak very highly of within the organization. I don't know if you, uh, you know, how closely you follow the team, but Don Kelly is overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly beloved. Granted, he's also a lefty, though, so that probably wouldn't fit. I just figure Jim Leland's going to find any way to get Don Kelly into the lineup, uh, even if it's not necessarily a fit. But right now, it seems like Bosch would probably be, you know, kind of the leader in the clubhouse to to use a uh, very tired cliche. So can you talk a bit about the bullpen, which kind of became the story uh, in October, or certainly was one of the stories when 
everyone lost confidence in, in Valverde. Clearly, Leland lost confidence in him and, and went with sort of a bullpen by committee slash Phil Coke closing situation. And this whole winter, there's been, I, I guess, the team saying that, that Bruce Rondon will just come right up and start closing. And and there's always been this sort of suspicion that eventually they would go with someone more established. It seemed like for a long time, uh, Boris was was kind of trying to sell Rafael Soriano to the Tigers. Clearly, mm-hmm. that didn't work. So do you think there is some buzzer beater uh, established closer move here? Or are they definitely going with him? And, and how do you feel about his chances to be successful, I guess, either from a a real perspective or a fantasy perspective, or maybe it's the same. Before I jump to that, I will quickly point out that Brennan Bosch is also a left-hander, but he's hit left-handers better than he's hit righties in his career. So I just want to make that clear. You would be dealing with two lefties in a platoon, which is kind of weird, uh, but Bosch, you know, for all all the uh, work that he's done, he's much better against lefties. So I will point that out. Shifting over to the bullpen, looks like Rondon's going to get every opportunity to win the job whether or not they bring in somebody more on uh like the brian wilson level somebody that's going to cost a bit less that remains to be seen uh with right now the answer not not being clear at all Mm -hmm. rondone is going to get a shot and from what i heard at tigers fest uh through somebody that was there uh, talking to jim leland which i believe is actually going to be your your uh, next guest uh jason beck Mm -hmm. he said that leland was clear that phil coke would get the next shot if rondon can't cut it they're going to go to phil coke personally i'm not thrilled with that i feel like they've got opportunities uh, with guys like octavio dotel who's done it in his career granted he's on year 39 of his career so it was back in year 20 of his career that he did it uh al albuquerque i think is filthy i think he's got the the stuff to really be a closer but he's got to get more innings under his belt before i think they're willing to trust him although with that thinking you would think that they would trust Albuquerque before they would trust Rondone. And even Benoit, the money that they paid him, I figured when they signed him to that contract that it was a, okay, you're going to be our eighth inning guy till we, till we get rid of Valverde. Um, and they liked Valverde you know, until basically the playoffs of last year. It was more the fans that didn't like him. But you know, we're going to let his contract run out, and then that last year, you're going to be our closer. But there has been no talk of him being the closer, and it could be related to the fact that he started giving up home runs like crazy at the end of last year. So everything I've heard says Rondon's going to get a legitimate shot in spring to win it, and if not, it's going to be Coke. Can Rondon do it? I mean, it's going to be really tough. Take out the fact that he's never played in the majors and he's pitched nine innings in, in AAA, as if that's not huge, both of those factors. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he can't find the plate is the real problem. So to me, it looks like a guy who can come in, he's going to get strikeouts. Depending how long his leash is, he should get you a few saves, but I can't imagine him holding the job. I just can't. This isn't a team that can mess around with the back uh, you know the back inning, uh, the back of the bullpen there, and let guys blow games. You know they need every game, even if they are in a quote-unquote easier division. They don't want the same situation as last year where they have to come back. So I think the leash would be short, and then we might see Coke. So from a real aspect, I think the, it's going to be short-lived. From a fantasy aspect, if you go ahead and get Rondone, you got to look at getting Coke as well. So it, is this a weakness then, would you say, given the uncertainty Absolutely. at the back? Or, or do you think there are just sort of enough solid arms there that one way or another it will work well, out? 
because of their seeming uncertainty, at least on the surface, to go for Benoit, Dotel, even Brian Villarreal, or Al Albuquerque, all who have nasty stuff, mm-hmm. who can I really think can do the job, with their reticence to, to even talk about any of those four as the guy, I do think it's a weakness going in because I just Rondon is such an unknown. It would not be unheard of for a rookie to come in and, and, and tear it up. You know, that's going to be short samples. He throws 100, 100 like it's, uh, you know, nothing. It's super easy for him. But again, that's because he doesn't know where it's going. It's easy to rear back and throw, e- easier to rear back and throw 100 when you don't care where it's going. He's going to need to figure that out in the majors or else he's going to have a six walk rate. And, you know, unless he's got Charlie Manuel. Uh, you know, working with him the way he did with Lidge when Lidge had like a seven and a half ERA. I just think they got to pull the plug too quickly to even try it. I think this is a guy who should get some reps in AAA, but they shouldn't go with Coke because that guy cannot get out right handers. You know, it was, he was great in the playoffs. Pat him on the back. Thank you for that. But man, if you look at his splits, they're horrific. He's barely a good loogie. It's not like he overwhelmingly dominates lefties, and he's got nothing against righties. Mm-hmm. So uh, Max Scherzer, by the time the playoffs came around, you could have probably made some sort of an argument that Max Scherzer was the second best pitcher in the American League. Um, But he also, if you look at his full season, it was, you know, it was a it was an okay season. It was pretty good, but it was like, you know, nearly four ERA Um, and, uh, you know, nothing like he didn't get Cy Young votes or anything like that. So do you think that Scherzer was that his breakout or does he have kind of a full season of that excellence coming for him this year? I mean, is he going to break out this year? I think he's got more. He's got the full six months because if you look, it really was just the one month. Uh, he, he left April with a 7.77 ERA. And hey, that's great if you're in Vegas. That doesn't work when, you're, when, when it's your pitcher ERA. So he was trying to climb out of that hole all season. And that's difficult to do. And, that, and that, that's proven by the fact that for the final five months, he had a 3.14 ERA. And, you know, you're talking about how he was arguably the second best pitcher on the team or in baseball, you know, behind Verlander. He was – Excellent. I thought he could have gotten some some down ballot Cy Young votes, and it wouldn't have been ludicrous. But if you look at the composite numbers, it doesn't look as good. But he avoided the implosion start the rest of the way, and really it was just an awful beginning. Uh, two and two-thirds innings, seven earned runs, his very first start. The, other, the next four of the month, they weren't good, but they weren't that horrific. But the rest of the way, once he turned the corner in May, he started with a uh, with seven innings of, of one-run ball against the White Sox. He took off from there, and the, and the strikeouts were just amazing. He had the highest uh, strikeout per or excuse me strikeouts per nine ratio uh, in the game last year at about 11.8. He he was excellent. But I do think there's another step. Pardon me, that was 11.1. Uh, I do think there's another step for him to take where he puts it together for all six months. That that slider that he has is, is devastating. He does need to get a bit better against lefties. He did struggle with them at times, and he had some in-division lefties, which he faced often, that really gave him trouble. So that's going to be the hurdle. If he can cover facing them, he can have a huge six months, and he needs to get over that hurdle, have that first 200-inning season, and you're going to be looking at two aces on the Tigers. And Victor Martinez, you buying, believing? Absolutely. Uh, it was the biggest move of the offseason before the offseason really got going because obviously once the season ended, they'd made that addition, so to speak. Mm-hmm. They were getting him back. The fact that they were replacing Delman Young with him, the expectation isn't even that high. He doesn't even have to be the victor that we're used to. 
That said, I do think there's a chance he will be. Uh, he's not going to catch. The organization has been clear about that, not even in, in, a, in a pinch sort of situation. They'll put the equipment on Don Kelly and get him behind the plate before they will let Victor Martinez catch. He might give Prince Fielder the occasional half-off day where they flip and Prince DHs, Victor plays first. But uh, they're going to save him. They're not going to let him you know, risk any sort of injury. So if this guy's going to come in and be his 850 OPS type guy that he's been for his career, look out. But even if he's an 800 OPS guy, uh, that's 100 points better than what Delman Young was. And that, that's just a huge upgrade. It's the same thing with the right field upgrade uh, of moving from Bosch and company to Hunter. Hunter doesn't have to be what he was last year. He just has to be a you know, reasonable facsimile of that, and he's going to be markedly better than what they had in right, plus the defense factor. So those are two massive, massive upgrades that, along with the lineup they already have and the starting pitching, might cover some shakiness in that bullpen as they figure it out in, in April. Mm-hmm. So let's get a prediction. How many wins and where do they finish? 92 in first place. All right. That's clear. Yes, very that's much better than all the predictions we got last week, which was <laughs> Lots of a lot of hemming, a lot yes. of hawing. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, this was a 90-plus win club last year on paper. Granted, they don't play the games on paper, but I think everybody looked at this team and said, even though they're, they're, they're star-stacked and they get all their, their value from there, that, that's not a bad way to be. And, uh, you know, there were some things that didn't go right, that infield defense – did hurt them in, uh, in spots, but it wasn't as atrocious all season, specifically Cabrera. The rest of it was, uh, especially at second base until they got Infante. They're going to have Infante a full year, Sanchez a full year, uh, Victor obviously all year, and then Torrey Hunter coming in. I think 92 might be selling them short, but I think that's fair. Just go with 92 because I am a little bit worried about the bullpen for at least a month, month and a half. All right. All right. Thank you, Paul. Was, thank Thanks, you, Paul. Guys. You, all right. you brought the enthusiasm. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm a night owl. I'm a night owl, so I'm not even close to tired. And you're a Tigers fan, so you were happy to talk about how good the team is. That also helps. All right, uh, we will talk to you again soon then about another. Yes, team, sir. I suppose. Uh, and now, coming up after the intro, Pete will talk to Jason Beck at MLB.com. It may still be winter, but baseball prospectus is ready to play ball. Pete Barrett is taking you around the league with 30 insiders who cover Major League Baseball. Step into the box. The squeeze is on. And welcome to The Squeeze. I'm Pete Barrett, and joining me today on the telephone is Jason Beck, who covers the Detroit Tigers for MLB.com. Jason, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here, uh, Pete. How are you? Good, thank you. Uh, Jason, the Tigers are coming off a World Series appearance, going into the season stacked just like last year but last season it took a little while for the Tigers to get going on July 5th the Tigers were a sub 500 team what was the reason for the slow start and how do they plan on getting out of the gate faster this year well you know they uh the offense really wasn't uh, performing really what you know what they expected uh, you know it kind of gets overlooked in the triple crown season but Miguel Cabrera got off to kind of a slow start he had a couple of uh of a you know relatively long for him hitting slumps uh, early in the year. I, I remember there was like an 0 for 20 or 0 for 21 in April, and I want to say there was um, there was another one that was like 0 for 16 or 0 for 17. Uh, you know, I think early in the summer. Um, you know, that was one thing. Um, you know, I think really they were, more than anything it was just it was struggling for this team 
to, uh, to to really find the offensive identity. You know, it uh, it came in with such high expectations, and I think we kind of saw that in 2008 as well, the year that uh, Cabrera first came over. That uh, it, it's really something you can't you can't rely on an offense to win games on home runs day in and day out. And while the Tigers have a good collection of home run hitters, um, you know, it, it's I don't know if any team can really rely on that really to, to be kind of the uh, bread and butter of the offense. You combine that with some struggles against lefties, you know, Ryan Rayburn was somebody they were counting on to really provide some production at second base. Never really happened. Uh, it, it really ended up being an offensive disappointment more than anything the first half of the year. Have you had a chance to talk with some players this off season and gauge their mentality a year removed from being so close to a ring? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, they had uh tiger fest the other day and uh, you know, there were guys who were, you know, I think there's still some disappointment there, but I think more than anything, it, it's kind of uh, given them some resolve that uh, you know, there's some unfinished business to take care of. So, I, you know, I think among the guys who are back and really the vast majority of the roster is back that, uh, you know, I think that it's, it's going to be used as a motivating tool, not something really that's uh, as big of a disappointment. You know, I think even um, there's, there were a couple of funny moments really on the uh, on the caravan leading into Tiger Fest that uh, you know Jim Leland was able to uh, to joke about the World Series. You know, he apologized for you know the, to some fans for the World Series only lasting about six hours. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it was kind of a lighthearted moment. Um, so, and, and Jim takes these losses as hard as anybody. So for him to be able to joke about it, I, I think is a, a sign that they've been able to move on. And how important do you think it is for the players' mentality, perhaps, to not even just settle and just say, we've got Victor Martinez coming back healthy and the rest of this, the roster that's so great, but to bring in a guy like Tory Hunter? Well, I, you know, more than anything, I think Tory provides a different dimension to these guys. For one thing, you know, they really didn't have that guy they could rely on against left-handed hitting, you know, kind of what we talked about. The, the guys who would have figured would be in that group, you know, Johnny Peralta didn't perform as well against lefties as usual. Uh, Delman Young really wasn't that strong against lefties. Um, Austin Jackson's never really been a lefty killer. Torrey Hunter is a very balanced hitter who, when you put him in the right spot in the order, can really kind of be that catalyst. And that's the other thing is that, if, if you look at the stats from last year, they really didn't have anybody, you know, a set natural number two hitter to kind of bridge that gap between Austin Jackson and Miguel Cabrera. So even though, you know, both Jackson and Cabrera had great years, I know, I'm not sure you really got as much production as you should have out of, uh, out of that group. Um, you know, Torrey Hunter is a guy who can kind of, uh, you know, he's that natural guy. So, you know, assuming they put him in that two spot, I know there's some talk about Andy Dirks maybe getting some starts there too. But um, they're hoping to get that bridge there. And the leadership aspect, you know, I think could be pretty good for this team too. Uh, because when you look at it, you know, you don't really see it on the surface. But when you look at the makeup of the roster, you know, depending on how some things work out, it's really a younger team than I, I think a lot of people realize. We're talking Tigers baseball on the squeeze with Jason Beck. Make sure you're following him on Twitter at BeckJason. Top to bottom, this rotation, in my mind, from Verlander to Porcello is the best in baseball. And we get into a lot of arguments uh, in the, in the offseason who looks best on paper. 
Uh, in your mind, is it the Tigers? You know, I, I think if everybody performs their capabilities, you know, I think they should have, you know, one of the, uh, you know, I, I would grade them as the best rotation in baseball if they perform up their capabilities. You know, I know the Dodgers are some sort of pretty, uh, you know, pretty impressive squad. You know, I think, I don't think the Phillies can be overlooked for the talent that's still there. Um, you know, and there's some other teams out there as well. But when you look at the combination of young talent and guys who are proven, especially if you if you can find a way for Anibal Sanchez to build off of what he did down the stretch last year after the trade, I think it shapes up to be a really good rotation. Um, you know, I, I don't I don't think Drew Smiley gets as much credit as he should for what he's capable of doing. Here's a guy who doesn't really fit into the uh, Dave Dombrowski mold of hard throwers, but you know he, he picked up his first major league win in a start at Yankee Stadium on national television. Uh, you know he uh, you know, he was able to bring you know, to uh, transition over from starting the relief down the stretch in the middle of a pennant race. You know, fairly naturally after that, uh, you know, after the Sanchez trade and after coming back up from Toledo. And really, you know, and then when you look at uh, what he did in the opener of the uh, ALCS, I mean, he really saved that game for them after the uh, blown scene from Jose Valverde. I mean, he, he was really the salvation that uh, kept the Yankees down there. And uh, it, it kind of got overlooked in all the pub over what happened with Valverde in that game. Um, so really top to bottom, I, I think there's, there's a lot of balance there and, and I think there's a good combination of, uh, experience and potential. What we're doing here on the Effectively Wild podcast is interviewing the baseball prospectus author who wrote the chapter in the annual and also now on the squeeze, we're talking to insiders like you. So I'd like to take this opportunity to get your feel on the Tigers clubhouse. If you could take us inside to the personality of the team, Leland's rules and the other stuff that only you as a guy who in the clubhouse interacting with players on a daily basis could know. What's it like? Well, I mean, it was kind of an interesting transition last year. You know, I think it was a pretty laid back, even killed clubhouse last season. And I, a big reason for that was the combination of, uh, you know, Victor Martinez not being there because of the knee injury and then uh, bringing in Prince Fielder. I, I think Prince ended up kind of, uh, you know, selling into that leadership role, I don't know if it was really intentional or not, but, uh, you know, it ended up, by and large, being his team. And Prince is a very laid-back guy. You're not going to see Prince get very emotional or very angry after a loss, and he's not going to get too hyped up after a win. And I think this team kind of uh, followed that lead. And in that sense, I think it was very different than it was the year before, where, you know, Victor Martinez is much more of a fiery personality, and I think guys fed off of that. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see what the clubhouse is like this year with both of those guys back, but then also you, you add in Torrey Hunter, who's really one of the you know, better leaders in baseball, and, and who's somebody who uh, a lot of young people, as, as uh, young players have fed off of over the years, Mike Trout being the latest example. So you know, I'll be curious to see how those, uh, how those personalities blend uh, in spring training, and then uh, you know, see how it carries over in the season when they get into that first rough patch. Yeah. Now, this is Baseball Prospectus, a brand dedicated to the study of sabermetrics. In your understanding, how do the Tigers front office incorporate the use of baseball analytics in their base in their decision making? 
Well, you know, I, mean, I don't think they incorporate it as, uh, as deeply as some teams do, but I don't think they overlook it to the extent that some people accuse them of being. You know, they have a guy on the roster, Mike Smith, uh, director of baseball operations, who does a lot of the work with the advanced statistics. Uh, you know, he's very good at it. They use it in their analysis of uh, players, especially defensively. And, they, you know, they try to figure out matchups and they try to figure out, uh, you know, stuff like that. It, it plays a lot in the player evaluation. Um, I'm not sure if on a day-in, day-out basis, it's really something that gets utilized a whole lot. You know, I think Jim goes off of uh, a lot of uh, batter against pitcher matchups, but you're not going to see him really going over a whole lot of uh, zone ratings or, uh, you know, wins above replacement. Not, not that I would think war is really a, you know, statistic you would want to use on a game and game now basis. Right. You know, it's really more of player evaluation. But um, it's something where I, I think they they incorporated in in concert with their scouts. Dave's a guy, you know, Dave Dombrowski's a guy who puts a lot of trust in his scouts and, and who's really kept his, score, his uh, core scouting staff around for a very long time. I think more so than a lot of teams in baseball have. And you see a lot of cause that longevity is, you know, a certain amount of trust, but there's also a lot of pressure on these guys when, when they're, you know, putting their neck on the line to recommend the player. You know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But, um, I think what supplements what, you know, what the scouting evaluation does. So it doesn't get ignored. You know, I, I think it's a, a factor, especially defensively, but, you know, it's not really something where, you know, I don't think it's a prime judge for them on uh, who to sign or you know, who to promote or anything like that. Nice. We love the insight, Jason. Thank you so much again for joining us today.